This sermon, We Are Complementarian, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, August 22nd, 2021 at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, good morning. If you are visiting with us this morning, my name is Derek Overstreet. The privilege to be one of the pastors along with Tim Lambros, and I have the privilege of preaching this morning. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to Genesis 1. Verse 26. If you are visiting, uh, we are in the middle of a series we've titled Grounded, and we are going over uh, really seven shared biblical values, seven biblical convictions that unite us as a church doctrinally, but as well inform us functionally. They inform how we do ministry. And we've also made this series our new members class, if you will. And so for those who are seeking membership, you're like, yeah, good. I don't have to go to a different meeting. That's how you like that. I hope this is blessing you, serving you. And this morning, uh, we began with we are reformed, that is, in our understanding of salvation. Uh, two weeks ago, we are gospel-centered in all we do. And last week, we are continuationists. We believe that all the gifts are for the church's good today. And this morning, we are going to look at we are complementarian. Now, uh, we're going to be talking about biblical manhood and womanhood this morning, but I just want to prepare you. Um, I have 45 to 50 minutes this morning, so here's my notes. (laughs) Now, if you want to go deeper, notice these two books. Notice, notice my notes and these two books. Uh, these two books are wonderful books, smart men. Uh, Wayne Grudem, who wrote Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth, and Piper teamed up with Grudem to write Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. We are not going to get to all of this with this this morning, Okay. And so I want to encourage you, two outstanding books, and there are more if you would like to call me, and I'll turn you on to them. But here's what I want you to see. Whether it's these books or it's these notes, they're all built on this book. And that's what we're doing this morning. This morning is not about Sovereign Grace Church and our culture. This morning is not about a family of churches called Sovereign Grace Churches and the way we believe we should live with one another in our culture. This morning is about God's ordained design and desires for his people. And so we look this morning to this book, and we're going to be looking at Genesis 1 through 3, but we're going to begin by reading just Genesis 1, 26 through 27. So would you stand with me and let's read from God's word. And this is the word of the Lord. So let us come humbly with eager faith that God will not allow it to return void. Amen? Verse 26, then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth 
and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Well, Lord, as we come to your word, our prayer is the same words that we sung. Would you reveal your glory to us through the preaching of your word? Show us, show us Christ who is our life through the preaching of your word. And cause us not to merely have our thoughts shaped by your word, but to have our hearts transformed by your word that our lives would Reflect your word. Lord, I just want to say a prayer for those in Afghanistan this morning. Lord, we just sang a song, Behold Our God. Lord, there are a lot of people in trouble right now who don't know if they'll make it to the next day. And in particular, there are, there are Christians in that country whose very lives are being threatened simply because they call themselves Christians, simply because they have a Bible on their phone. Lord, I pray we don't understand your ways and your thoughts, but we pray that you would cause them to see and know that you are seated on your throne. You are not indifferent to their plight, You are not removed from their situation, but you are seated on your throne, ruling and reigning, and though we don't understand, Lord, you are bringing all things to your intended purposes. Lord, their situation might not change today, but may this great truth give them peace that surpasses all understanding, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to say something that might hit your ears a little funny this morning. I heard somebody say this to me, and it hit my ears funny. There is, what if I told you there is no such thing as a Christian? There is no such thing as a Christian. That's what I heard somebody say. He said, when you think about it, there is Christian men and Christian women. And certainly when it comes to salvation, Paul said there's neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female. And so in one sense in our salvation, our salvation doesn't know gender. But when you think about it, when it comes to discipleship in the Christian life, there is no such thing as simply a Christian. You are either a Christian man or a Christian woman. And that's an important distinction, because depending on which one you are, God speaks to you through his word a bit differently. God has a different design for you, and there are aspects to God's word where he speaks to me as a Christian man, 
And he speaks to my wife, Donna, as a Christian woman. Yes, your gender matters. Now, sadly, uh, our culture hates what I just said, that gender matters. And our culture believes that I should be hated for saying it. And you don't need me to tell you how the lines have all been all but been erased in regards to what it means to be a man or a woman. You have the pronoun debate to remind you of that. But sadly, the, the, this insidious culture creep has found its way into the church. I, I don't want to talk this morning about the world. I want to talk this morning about the church. Because in the church, the lines too often are being blurred and what we find is that instead of celebrating and reflecting God's beautiful design and desire for men and women whom he has redeemed with the blood of his only son the church finds itself increasingly stepping off of the authority of scripture and into bed with the world and so this is why this particular topic this morning Biblical manhood and womanhood should be a big deal in our church. It should be a big deal in every church. It is one of the greatest threats to the church today. Do we stand on the authority of God's word when it comes to men and women? In his book, Equal Yet Different, Alexander Strzok says in speaking to Um, biblical womanhood and manhood, he says, the gender debate is not an abstract, impersonal, doctrinal controversy. It touches directly on our humanness, our sexual identity, our ministry opportunities, the marriage relationship, family life, and life in the local church. It raises fundamental issues regarding fairness and justice, the influence of secular culture on Christian thinking, the correct methods for interpreting God's word, the leadership of our churches, and our faith in God's word. This is an important topic. This is a critical conviction. And in that, regardless of how our culture thinks and acts, secular or church culture, we must stand on the authority of scripture where God has spoken to the matter of how men and women were created differently. And here's the phrase. God created men and women equal, yet different. That's at the heart of our complementarian uh, convictions. Over and against the egalitarian view, which says, yes, men and women were created equal, period, The complementarian view says that men and women were created equal, yet different. If you go to our website, this is explained where it says, we believe it was God's glorious plan to create men and women in his image, giving them equal dignity and value in his sight, while appointing differing and complementary roles for them within the home and the church. Because these roles give different expressions to God's image in humanity, They should be valued and pursued in joy and faith. 
As the redeemed community of God, the church has a unique opportunity and responsibility to celebrate this complementarity, to contend for, its, for it against cultural hostility, and to protect it from sinful distortions. My prayer is that I will give you at least somewhat of a foundation this morning to do just that. So, beginning in Genesis 1, we have three points this morning. Created equal, created different, created to reflect. Very simple outline that will flow from the first three chapters of Genesis. But let's look first at created equal. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. And every conversation about the differences between men and women must begin in the very first chapter. Look down again at verse 26. Lost my place in my Bible. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Then drop down to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 26 verses, just 26 verses into God's self-revelation, which is what the Bible is, he establishes and settles the most fundamental, foundational truth about men and women. They both bear his image. Human beings are divine image bearers. Every human being, and this is established right in front, right up front in the word of God. Moses can't even get out of the first chapter without addressing, that, without making the bold statement that, that human beings are created in the image of God. Every human being was created as a rational, reasoning, moral being meant to rule and reign over God's creation on his behalf as his image bearer. That's a glorious reality. That's an amazing, we could stop this morning and have the worship team come back up and just sing. We, We have been created in the image of the Almighty. We are his reflective representatives walking this planet. This is the glorious reality that separates us from the rest of creation, that sets us apart from the animals, that even puts us over, according to the author of Hebrews, over the angels. It's where we find our dignity, our purpose, our worth. This this, uh, amazing reality in, in verse 26, this is why we cherish life beginning at the moment of conception in the womb. This is why we hate the sin, but we love the sinner because the sinner is created in the image of God. This is why we prize individualism without forsaking community. We were created in the image 
of God. Now, I want you to notice in verse 26 and 27, uh, you, you see that word man in verse 26, that that is, that's a reference, that is not a reference, that's not a gender reference. That's a reference to the human race, not the male gender. It's actually not until we get to verse 27 that when, when we re- see that God created, God created man, he created them male and female. So don't, don't get confused. In verse 26, he's referring with the term man, he's referring to the, the human race, mankind, and then down in verse 27, he makes a clear statement, male and female, he created them. Man and woman, he created them. He created them with very distinct differences, as we will see in a moment. God created men as men and women as women, both in his image, equal in nobility, value and dignity before God, equally valuable, necessary, and glorious to God. This is where our complementarian convictions begin, right here at the beginning of Scripture, that God created men and women in his image, and in his eyes, they are equal. And so just some application right up front. Men, this truth in Genesis 1 should crush our pride, (laughs) or any sense of superiority that we may feel toward the opposite sex. You go here, and there is no room for it. You are not thinking God's thoughts if you believe that you are superior to the women around you. Ladies, this truth should compel you with confidence to vigorously reject the lie of our age that that you are somehow inferior to men in the eyes of God, that you are somehow inferior because you're a woman. It should give you confidence and compel you to reject that truth. What we see in the beginning of Scripture is that God created men and women equal as image bearers. Now, with that said, he did create them differently. He created them equal, yet different. That's the second thing I want you to see. I want to take you to our statement of faith. It addresses this in page 21. It says, men and women are both made in the image of God and are equal before him in dignity and worth. Gender, designated by God through our biological sex, is therefore neither incidental to our identity nor fluid in its definition, but is essential to our identity as male and female. Although the fall distorts and damages God's design for gender and its expression, these remain part of the beauty of God's created order. Men and women reflect and represent God in distinct and complementary ways, and these differences are to be honored and celebrated in all dimensions of life. To deny or seek to remove these differences is to distort a fundamental way in which we glorify God as male and female. I am not going to get into the transgender deception this morning. 
what I want us to see is that God created men and women equal in their personhood, but different in their roles. He gave men, what does that mean? He gave men the primary responsibility to lead and women the primary responsibility to help. That that is the second point that's at the heart of our complementarian convictions. Created equal, yet different. Different roles. One, equality in dignity and worth and value, differing in God-ordained roles. Now, to say that doesn't mean that a man never helps or a woman never leads. It means that God gave the inclination and responsibility to lead to the man. And he gave the inclination and the responsibility to follow to the woman. Now, again, our culture hates what I just said and believes I should be hated for saying it. But it's what we find in Scripture. In fact, we see these differences laid out in the created order. Turn to Genesis 2, verse 15. I want to take a couple minutes and just goes. I want to show you two themes that surface in Genesis 2. The first one is this. We see in Genesis 2 that God created Adam as the leading character. Notice verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And so before Eve was formed, okay, Eve's not in the picture yet. Before she was formed, there was who? There was Adam entrusted by God with the responsibility for and and the authority over his creation. He, He was acting as a little L Lord over God's creation. And then you'll notice in verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it for in the day that you eat it, of it you will surely die. Again, there was Adam receiving instructions from God on how to live in obedience to him in the garden of how to, how to worship him, if you will, as he has authority, exercises authority over creation. And then look what he says in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Again, before Eve was formed, there was Adam exercising his God-given responsibility over creation. How? By naming the animals. In antiquity, the, the, the process of naming something or naming someone, that was actually an act of authority. That was an expression of authority to, to assign a name. 
And so what we have in Genesis 2 in these verses that gives us this, 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 if you will, this pre-woman, pre-Eve picture where we find Adam on center stage representing and embodying the human race, living as the little L Lord of the earth. And the point is this, that in the order of creation, God created Adam first. And that means something. That means something. Now, some don't believe it means anything. Some, some don't believe the created order is that significant. But you know who did? The Apostle Paul. The one who's responsible for writing most of the New Testament. Paul anchored his convictions of the role of men and women in the church right here in these verses. In 1 Timothy 2.12, you don't have to turn there, but, but he writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, what in the world is Paul's basis for such a claim? Inferiority? Misogyny? The culture? How could Paul make such a claim? Well, he tells us, because in verse 13, you know what he says? He says, for. In other words, here's why. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul, why, why don't you allow women to exercise authority over men? Because Adam was formed first, created order. Paul believed that it meant something. This is why in this church, if you're visiting us or you're wondering about becoming a member, this is why we believe women are not called to be pastors. We, 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 we cherish the women in this church, but we believe that while they are equal, they are different in their God-given roles. And so we don't have women pastors in this church. This is why we don't, we don't permit women to lead in certain ministries. It's not demeaning. It's not draconian. It's God's design and desire from the beginning. Just like Paul said when he wrote to a young pastor named Timothy. Adam was formed first, then Eve. So we see Adam as this leading character in the creation order. And we see then God created Eve as the supporting character. And we see this in primarily in two ways. Notice verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up its place with, with flesh. Sorry about that. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. In verse 21, we, we see that Eve was created differently. He, he, she was created from Adam. She was formed from his rib. And this is actually the basis for male leadership in marriage that we see in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is arguing about a wife's submission to her husband. And you know where he anchors that argument? He quotes, man was not made, in 1 Corinthians 11, 7, man was not made from woman, but woman 
from man. The created order meant something to the apostle Paul. Again, Paul's convictions on gender uh, rooted in the creation order. Uh, Notice what it says in verse 18. This is probably the most important thing that I want you to see. Uh, in, In verse 18 it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now look at verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So what does the Lord do? The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and placed it upon the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. This is the first, listen, this is the first statement in the Bible regarding a woman's role. This is the first place where God speaks about the woman's role. And the key word here is the word helper. Helper. In the Hebrews, it means to support by coming alongside with value and purpose and dignity. This isn't daddy's little helper. This is someone, that, that, word, that word is a profound word. It's a weighty word. Eve was created for Adam to be his helper, to bring value and purpose to what God has called him to do. God created Eve to complement Adam. Thus the name complement, just the word complementarian. To complement Adam, to help him populate and have dominion over creation, to, to support him as he leads. It's a beautiful role. It's a critical role. In fact, notice Adam's response in verse 23. He sees Eve. And verse 23 says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This at last, that, that, that is Adam's response to Eve. At last, <laughs> yes, I have someone. I have someone who is just as I am, created in the image of God. I have someone who is equal in personhood, born from the very hands of God through my own body. Adam is not, or Adam is alone. It's not good, and God said so himself. He needs someone. He's found no one but a woman, one that shares his nature and bears uh, his likeness as an image bearer, a woman who is created specifically with the ability, the resources, and the strength to be the perfect counterpart, his equal, as Adam says, my very flesh. 
I don't know what this scene must have looked like, but verse 23 at least helps us with our sanctified imagination to be able to say, Adam saw her and thought, wow. (laughs) And he identified with her. He didn't need to get to know her. He identifies with her immediately. Immediately. Oh, this is good. I like this. And did you know, did you know, those words in verse 23, this at last are the first human words recorded in Scripture. And they are Adam's response to his perfect Helpmate. Listen. Study Gen- study these verses, Genesis 2, 15 through 25. This is not a demeaning scene. <laughs> this is a glorious scene. The, 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 Genesis 2 is a glorious scene. God's design, God's best. God created men and women equal yet different, and it was very good to Adam, to Eve, and to God. At last, Adam says. Now, if you keep reading into Genesis 3, we're not going to unpack it today, but if you keep reading, go there this week you know that something went terribly wrong, right? Instead of leading, Adam followed. Instead of following or helping, Eve led. The roles reversed, and the world was plunged into sin. You know the story. Go remind yourself of it this week. What a mess. What a mess when man steps out of God's ordained purposes. Adam wasn't leading in the garden. He was nowhere to be found. He just allowed his wife to be engaged with a deceptive serpent we know as Satan. And Eve wasn't worried about her husband's leadership. She just engaged and made decisions. And ultimately, Adam, because he's the leader, took full responsibility. Go read Romans 6. And the result is that men dominate their wives. They don't lovingly lead them. The result is that wives subvert their, their husband's leadership. And that was part of the curse later on in Genesis 3. The wives would desire their husband's role 
that the husbands would dominate their wives. And before you know it, we wake up and there's transgenderism and gay marriage. It all begins in the garden where the man wasn't leading and the woman wasn't following. It's important. But there's also great hopefulness. In fact, if you read in Genesis 3, God actually curses the serpent. He, he, he curses Adam. He curses Eve. Judgment is given. They ultimately are sent out of the presence of God of the garden. They cannot come back in. Mankind has now been plunged into sin. Therefore, as Scripture teaches, every human being, the moment they are, they are conceived, they have a sinful, fallen nature. We don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. But there is hope because in Genesis 3, the Lord gave us a picture that one would come. The gospel finds its way, I think, in verse 16 of chapter 3. There is hope. As great as our sin is, the garden pointed toward a Savior who is greater. We sing a song, my sins, they are many. Your mercy is more. The world was plunged into sin in Genesis 3, but it all pointed toward one who would come and offer a way for sinners to be redeemed. And in redeeming sinners, God also redeems our roles as men and women. You can't separate the two. At the cross, we have forgiveness of sins. In the gospel, we have the power to be men and women God designed and desired for us to be in the church and in the home. The gospel does that. In fact, if you read Ephesians 5, you'll see that the gospel is presented as a picture of that or, that, or that rather as men and women in their marriage give themselves to their roles, that that, that, that is a glorious reflection of the gospel. In Christ, we have a glorious picture that compels our marriage to be a living parable of Jesus and the church according to Ephesians 5, 32, that says this mystery is profound. He's speaking about marriage. This mystery is profound in, in regards to the union of a man and a woman, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, when I, when I walk in my role, my God-ordained role as a husband, and I don't do it perfectly, just ask my wife. When she walks in her role as a Christian woman, my wife, do you know what's happening? The gospel's being proclaimed. Amen. It's a living parable. That's what marriage is meant to be. That's what men and women walking in their God-ordained roles, it is meant to project, this is beautiful and good. It's God's plan, and it is meant to be a picture of Christ and his church, the loving sacrifice that compelled Christ to give himself 
up, even to the point of death. The church that submits herself to the authority and the teachings of Christ, so as a wife submits to her husband's leadership. You can't disconnect the gospel from your marriage. You can't disconnect the gospel from your roles as Christian men and Christian women. In fact, the gospel comes and redeems those roles. The gospel comes and shows the glory and the worth and the significance of those roles. Husbands, listen, because of Christ, you know, I'm preparing the sermon. I'm going, man, I told Don and I were driving yesterday and we were talking about this and I can't remember what I said, but she said, you're going to preach on that? (laughs) (laughs) I have been so aware of my own failings in this area. And there's two things that give me hope. Well, three things. One, all my sins, past, today, and future, are forgiven. I have the Holy Spirit in me, promise number two, to help me grow in my marriage. And number three, there is coming a day when all will be made right. And this won't be an issue. Perfected in his presence. But listen, husbands, if you're feeling the weight right now, like I have this week, you can love your wife graciously. What I mean by that is not according to her performance day by day, but love her graciously despite her performance, knowing that like you, she is a sinner saved by grace and God has divine affections for her. You, you, you can love your wife sacrificially, setting aside your good for hers, just as Jesus loved the church. So he says, you love your wife. And God never calls us to something without empowering us for that something. Husbands, you can love your wife redemptively. What I mean by that is generously encouraging her in Christ, humbly correcting her uh, with, with, with the word, constantly washing her with the word, bringing the word to bear on her feelings and her emotions, helping her to look to God, behold her God, and not always listen to what her, what her gut is telling her. You can do that knowing that God's spirit is actively transforming her, even as he's actively transforming you. And I just want to say, listen, Men, husbands, where grace, sacrifice, and redemption have not characterized your loving leadership of your wife, take it to the cross. Confess it to the Lord. Repent. Which just says, Lord, I have been wrong. Grant me the grace to love my wife according to your ways. Help me to look to Christ, not this culture. Help me look to Christ, not my feelings. Help me to look to Christ, 
not my personal gain, to know how to love my wife. And in an Ephesians 5.18 way, fill me with your spirit for the very thing. Repent. Wives, because of the gospel, you're called to compliment your husband as his God-ordained helpmate. It's not a call to be a doormat. It's intelligent and joyful. It's not a blind submission. It's truth in motion. It's not passive silence. It involves your godly wisdom. Your husband needs your godly, gracious, gospel-centered help. God ordained it that way. He created you to be his helpmate. And when you embrace God's ways for your marriage... It expresses your love for, not only your husband, but your love for and your trust in Jesus, just as the church does in Ephesians 5, 22. So wives, where there is resistance or bitterness toward your husband's leadership, I encourage you, repent. And let me say this, if you're in a marriage where you are abused, do you need to speak up? Do you need to bring somebody into that? Do you need to get help? Do you need to trust the Lord? Because that's not God's design. Don't be afraid to reach out and get help if you're in danger. That's not God's design for you. For the moms and dads here, model complementarianism for your kids. Model it and disciple them in it. Dads, lead. Moms, compliment. It's beautiful and it's beneficial because it's God's way and it proclaims Christ in a unique way. And you have an opportunity to shape another generation of complementarians. So teach, model, and teach this to your kids. Singles, can't check out. (laughs) Thought you were getting away, huh? No. Listen, singleness is a gift from God, so enjoy it, 1 Corinthians 7. God is sovereign over your future. As you enjoy your singleness, remember that. God knows his plans for you. And complementarianism is not something you look forward to. It's something that's for you right now. Did you know that our statement of faith actually addresses this? Single men and women are no less able to enjoy and honor God, and no less important to his purposes, they also are to give expression to God's image in distinct and complementary ways, flourishing as his image bears and bringing him glory in their singleness. Listen, single men, you are not the head of your single sisters, let's be clear, okay? That's, that, that, is, that, is, that is for your future wife if the Lord wills it. But you can't, but, but, but there are ways that you can lead the single Christian women in your life. Beginning 
beginning with your attitude toward them, your conversations with them, and your behavior around them. There is a way that you can lead them and model biblical complementarianism. Single ladies, you are not called to submit to your single brothers, but you can let them practice their leading while practicing your helping by allowing them to lead. Conversations, group decision-making, ministry opportunities. I don't want to get bottled down in the, in the weeds here. But there are ways, single men and women, there are ways that you can give yourself to this and, in a sense, be trained for that day, Lord willing, that, that you will have a husband or a wife. Complementarianism is for you now. I want to close with this. Third point is created to reflect. I hope it's clear to you by now that complementarianism goes way back, even before time. You were created in the image of a Trinitarian God. And that's where I want to end. I want to end with this picture in our heads. The Trinity of God, where each person is equally and fully God. Equal in godness. And yet each, per, each person of the Trinity gives themselves to a different role. God the Father leads. God the Son, who is equal in godness, in personhood to God the Father, submits to the Father. I only came to do my Father's will, Jesus said. God the Spirit, equally God, just as God the Father and God the Son are, submits to the Father and the Son. Think about salvation. God chooses the Son, does the work of redemption, and the Spirit makes that work effectual in the hearts of all that God has chosen. Three persons equal in godness, yet different roles. This is the pattern. This is the ultimate pattern of God-ordained roles. When you give yourselves to them freely and joyfully, you whether you are married or single, you are, you are reflecting God's Trinitarian glory to the world around you. And oh, how the world needs to see the gospel demonstrated in the beauty of God's design for men and women who are, according to Scripture, created equal yet different. That's why we are complementary.